sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is one of Australia's top competitors and coaches, Jeremy Skinner. Jeremy's fresh off some great recent performances, winning the ADCC Asian Trials by submitting all his opponents, and also a strong performance at the recent ADCC World Championships. It was great to chat to him a little bit about his journey through the sport, and also some of the ideas he has around learning, coaching, and developing your own unique style. As usual, if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with your friends, and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes if you haven't already. But for now, let's get into another episode of Inside Position with Jeremy Skinner. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Tom. I wanted to get started just asking you about your experience at ADCC Trials. I was watching some of the matches and it seemed like when you won, there was a lot of emotion there. You could tell that it's been something you were planning and working towards for a long time. Yeah, tell me what was going through your head as the day is progressing, as you're winning matches, you're getting closer and closer to the goal. And then as well, what it was like when you finally realized you'd done it, you know? Emotionally, leading up to ADCC trials, I it's very different to actually winning trials. Like normal competition for me, I, I feel very calm. I generally don't get nervous for competition. Even for uh, trials that day, I, you know, woke up that day and it, I knew I was going to win that day. Like I was just so certain of it, you know, knowing my skill set and, and knowing the competition, I, I, I knew I was going to win that day. But it's definitely a very different thing, even though you know you're going to win. When you do win, just it, it all, you know, sort of rushes in at once. Like you would know this, like like having won trials yourself. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where previously having lost in uh, the ADCC trials in Japan uh, in 2019 and then three years later, like having three years to think about um, winning and, and you know, how important it is to me. It's hard not to uh, have all those emotions rush in. Um, it, it, the day itself, uh, after the like, like so I, I felt very confident, um, because I have great, uh, great teammates that I train with. And I actually had, uh, one of my teammates on the opposite side of the bracket and he did very well that day and we faced each other in the final, but despite the confidence, my first match, I think went for about eight minutes. I, I got taken into overtime and I, and I felt very good through the match. Like I was attacking the whole time, but, um, in the time that it took me to have that eight-minute match, um, my teammate Dave had already had three of his matches, and I think he submitted each of his opponents in about 30 seconds to a minute. So I, I came off from that first match, and I, I'm looking at Dave, who's just had three in a row, smashed him out. And I was like, shit, is every single one of my matches going to be like that, and Dave's just going to run through to the final? But but fortunately, my other matches um, went pretty smoothly. So yeah, so so it, it was that, that first match. It was a little bit of a hiccup, and and I think just um, you know, warming up a bit, um, shaking off a bit of rust. But outside of that, you know, it was a very confident day. Generally, feel pretty relaxed and yeah, um, pretty confident when I compete. And you won every match by submission as well, didn't you? I so I won four out of five matches by leg lock, and I, I won that first match by guillotine was sort of disappointed that I didn't get to show off other aspects of my game that day. I have made some adjustments, some pretty big adjustments in what I've worked on since uh, since then, so that way I could feel more confident in showing off other aspects of my game. I think that that day sort of made me realize those key skills that I needed to develop um, to allow other areas of my game to shine. 
And was there much pressure going into it, especially like for the Australia and the Oceania trials? You only have one go to qualify, whereas most of the other trials you have two goes. So building up three years to that, like, did, were you ever worried that wanting it too much would kind of get in the way of doing the job? I, I, I generally find that I don't have a big crossover um, between uh, my performance and any sort of like emotion leading up to competition. Um, I, I feel like I, could, I do an, a decent job com- like compartmentalizing um, that aspect of it. Like, like with my teammates, we've joked about the fact that I probably compete better than I deserve to. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, so generally I feel okay. We were meant to have, um, uh, a second trial. So I think originally they had Sydney planned and then, um, a, a, a trials planned for Singapore. Um, the Sydney trials got delayed until what month was that in? I think that was, uh, June, I believe we had, uh, the Sydney trials. So, so we were meant to have it earlier in the year, um, followed by trials in Singapore, but then that initial Sydney trials got delayed and then the uh, trials in Singapore got cancelled. Um, so it's not meant to be that we're only meant to have one trials for the region, um, but we we both ADCCs in a row, we've ended up only with one trials each. And since then, then you mentioned you've changed up things in your training. Like what are your thoughts on once you qualify for the big show, is it more about filling in your weaknesses or is it more about maximizing your strengths or how do you go about that in adjusting your training and stuff? Sure. So, so from trials to ADCC, it didn't give me a lot of time to, to address certain areas of my game. So it meant that immediately after trials, I just had to go hard into working on um, certain skills uh, to, to fix those holes in my game. But then probably in the, la- the four weeks out, this is when I, the, the intention is to bring it all together. I, I think from three months, I had about three months from trials to ADCC uh, to, to work on things. Um, so it's a bit of an awkward amount of time. Like ideally, I would have liked to have had a, probably about a six-month window. I, I think six months is sort of a good period of time where you can take uh, sort of any skill set from like a sort of infantile sort of stage and bring it really up to championship level. And then the process of putting it all together, is that more about... Like when you're building up the skills, are you using different methods like positional training, more study, different things? And then how's the changeover going from improving your skills in the specific area to then putting it all together? Is it more rolling, specific training partners? Like what's the process there? I'll be changing up the positional training that I'll do. So it was it was a lot of work, uh, positional training on those specific skill sets as well as just forcing those areas and rolling. Like even like say for example you want to work wrestling, but you've got maybe train like training partners that don't necessarily intuit their way to wrestle or like intuit, you know, wrestling, like maybe like if you go to stand up and they choose to sit down. So instead, you know, you can just force wrestling practice by sitting down and then they're playing passing and then you just stand up on them. Um, Like, so you can almost trick it in ways like that. But in terms of actually working on the skill sets versus bringing it together, yeah, it'll be a lot more focused uh, positional training initially um, on those key skill sets. Um, and then looking to bring it together, we, we you know, go back to doing probably our, um, I wouldn't say broader, but probably more fundamental position. So uh, probably the more key areas, particularly for ADCC, our fundamental positional training would be, you know, rear mount, uh, top control, uh, attacking turtle are probably the three major ones. Um, so probably bringing it back to them. And then, yeah, uh, uh, rolling would be not strictly working game plan, but um, playing a lot more play to win versus, uh, you know, looking to actually develop those key areas. You've been coaching a lot recently, have you? 
I was wondering how the process is coaching a lot and competing and some of the positives that come with that. I don't know if you're someone that likes to run your own training. I know that's something that suits me a lot. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So I probably, I, when I say train, I as in participate in a training session that someone else runs. So um, I'll train with Luke Martin two times a week at Sydney West. And then most of my other sessions in the week will be me coaching. I generally run the session the way that I want to train. So I'll probably run, I, I run a 90 minute session. I'll do the first 45 minutes will be drilling. Um, I'll keep the drilling focused on, you know, what, when I look at the training room, what the guys need to work on, um, which has an interesting effect of getting me to develop skills that I wouldn't necessarily have worked on for my own development. Um, and so it's, helped me become a lot more of a well-rounded grappler. Um, and then followed by, we probably, we do uh, positional training and then rolling. And so we do a fair bit of positional training. Um, we always do at least two positions. I'll generally do one position focused on what we've covered in class. And then the second position, it'll either be, you know, a broader position, or I might even just be a position that I intend to work on for myself. I always found it funny when I was coaching and competing at the same time, I'd be like planning two separate sessions nearly. I'd be planning the overall session based on kind of the other people's goals, but then I'd be fitting my stuff into it and they'd kind of have to cross over in certain ways. But it actually helped a lot because it made me view the sport in almost a different way. Like things are connected more than you think and yeah. different things like this. It, even going through that thought process of thinking about what your students need for their training and then thinking, well, maybe I need to add that to my training and thinking more about like, I guess the learning learning process in general, because then you can start applying it to, to what you're working on when maybe before you wouldn't have had that opportunity to sort of step back and take a look at it. And I noticed as well at trials, you're using a lot of, obviously using a lot of leg locks. That's probably something you're more well known for, but a lot of outside heel hooks as well, which is something that isn't used as much these days. There's a lot of strong counters. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on, like outside heel hooks versus inside heel hooks and maybe some things in leg locks that are overlooked in your opinion. One of the things I find interesting is people in jiu-jitsu often get quite um, preachy about this idea of that we need to be well-rounded, but then, you know, when it comes to leg locks, it's like, it's suddenly, oh, no, 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 we should only do inside heel hooks. Um, outside heel hooks, uh, in my opinion, are foundational to a strong leg lock game. And I think some of the best setups to, uh, you know, to get to inside heel hooks come from positions that you would tr normally go for an like a setup outside heel hooks. Um, so I think they're, they're two sets of leg locks that work very well together. Even outside of that, I probably play certain positions um, and attack outside heel hooks that other people aren't very competent at. You, you'll hear this idea about, you know, if you want to go uh, compete at a championship level, you need to at least have like one skill set that you are disproportionately skilled at compared to the rest of the the competition um so i think even uh, i think there are certain things there with the outside heel that you can use that i think other people aren't seeing um and so i feel very like like it gives me confidence in going into adcc having that skill set that i think other people probably don't respect and it's kind of a unique style as well like there's a lot of leg entanglements that you're doing from there that you wouldn't see people using as much maybe so do you feel like having that kind of unique game gives you a big advantage then and how do you how do you go about developing that unique game because people would ask me all the time like oh you have all these weird moves that i haven't seen how did you come up with those and i, f I find it hard sometimes to tell them i just kind of stumble upon it and then yeah like what's your process of adding new and unique things to your game so 
I think a big part of it is, yeah, like I think people often think about inspiration being, you know, just based on absolutely nothing, just bringing a certain idea into existence or, you know, like creating something from nothing. But really it's going to be from taking something that fits in another position and sort of recognizing what elements cross over and then like basically just like reapplying a particular technique um, to, to this new position. Like I was even, I've got even got in my notes today um, certain types of passing that would be done from another position and reapplying it to um, certain leg entanglements um, and, and passing from those leg entanglements or even um, different styles of like entries into the legs um, from different positions. Like people often talk about, Oh, like if we were in space, like, you know, close guard and mount are the same position. So it's like, oh, well then you can potentially start taking some, like you identify how similar two positions are and you try and work with that rather than recognizing the differences. And would you be big on taking notes and different things? Very big on taking notes. I, I, it's, I think, uh, note taking and studying is being like probably one of the more critical, critical aspects of my development in jujitsu, just consistently since white belt. Um, it's just something I've always done in jiu-jitsu. Rest in peace, Leandro Lowe. But uh, I remember like even working through other people's studies um, or, you know, notes on people's games and and Leandro Lowe, uh, his sort of spider de la Hiva, I remember that being one that I watched pretty frequently. I, th- I can't remember who did that. It might have been... I can't remember uh, what the name of the YouTube channel was because this is going back to like 2011. Maybe BJJ Scout. Or yeah, something. maybe BJJ Scout. Um, it, yeah, like breaking down Leandro Lowe's like Spider De La Hiva um, guard that he played and just sort of showing the befores and afters of Leandro's uh, guard game, you know, and how it changed uh, through the years. So I, I think this is something that anyone can do. And I think people are leaving a lot on the table by not doing it. When you're coaching then, would that attention to detail rub off on the students? Like, how would you say your coaching style is? Do you encourage more, like, it's all about the skill? Is it all about scrapping? Like, what's your main priority as a coach to help your students with? Yeah, so the way that I see it is, as a coach, I'm focused entirely on the skill aspect. It's the only aspect of jiu-jitsu that I can teach. Like, I can't teach someone to be athletic. I can't teach someone to have a particular, like, you know, like a dogged mindset, I can teach them, you know, good jujitsu. Some of people, like, you know, some students, I think they just are not going to gravitate towards, you know, note-taking and studying. Like I, I could pick certain students. I'm not going to, because I, I feel like it, it's almost disparaging, but, you know, uh, they have their approach that works for them. And so rather than taking notes, they, they rely on me to show them uh, certain techniques and they even will take that and, and get creative with it, but they don't necessarily study the game and that's fine just everyone's different and they have their own approach but yeah at the end of the day my focus is on the skill um i think that's you know working towards uh an ideal jiu-jitsu um you know we we look at the sport and while it is a sport it seems like the the aspect of jiu-jitsu that people romanticize is the skill aspect and i think that's probably the part that i can have the biggest impact on in my students i'm pretty similar in terms of my mindset with it as well Obviously, at times you need to get a bit rough and put everything together, especially when you want to win some of these bigger tournaments. But like my favorite athlete has always been Roger Federer. And I feel like even if I just try and be as close to that in jiu-jitsu as I can, where you're winning, you have the full toolbox, things look effortless. You know, you almost uh, you're so skillful, it's almost dismissive of the other person. You know, you can float past them and 
well-rounded, all these things. So this is kind of the ideal that I'm I'm going towards. I'm by no means the Roger Federer of, of Jiu-Jitsu yet, but uh, it's fun to try and be that. It feels more endless almost, that pursuit, than trying to be jacked and taking steroids and, you know, spazzing around doing knee slides and that's similar as well to what we're talking about before with uh you know i guess inspiration for technique is you can look across at other sports and see you know people like uh roger federer um you know uh in chess magnus carlsen and like look at sort of the ideal uh aspects of these competitors and you think okay like can i bring that into jujitsu um like even like you know someone like john danaher you know you can take but, but before he sort of came along there was not a lot of uh, discussion about like, you know, epistemology and like pedagogy and, and things like this. Um, but he took those aspects of education and, you know, really sort of brought them to light in jujitsu. At what stage in your career did those ideas make sense to you? Because I know you went to Melbourne to train with Lachlan and I was wondering, like, was he a big influence on you? Was Craig over there a big influence or did you just stumble across some of this stuff yourself from trial and error? Um, so it, it's a mix of a few things. So I started training, um, at Absolute in Melbourne in 2017, but I, I started Jiu Jitsu in 2011 and I was studying match footage as like from when I started Jiu Jitsu. So I was 16 at the time. It just made sense to me. I, I, I just thought, oh, you know, I, I want to get as good as I can. So I might as well try and watch the best guys. Um, I probably mainly studied, um, the Meow Brothers at the time. And I remember like sitting through like, you know, watching match after match of the Meows and trying to like compare different matches and what they were doing in different positions and trying to see if I could replicate that. Um, probably the style of jujitsu the Meows used at the time would have been far above what I was capable of when I, you know, I didn't have probably, uh, a, you know, a, a strong foundation in jujitsu yet, but I, I still think like that was the right idea. And I think moving to absolute reinforced a lot of those ideas because that's what, uh, you know, Craig and Lachlan uh, were doing. And so it was, I think it's good to train with like-minded people. Um, just it, it helps strengthen the things that you're already good at. It was good to probably go to absolute with a lot of those qualities, but then it was good to then train with people that had taken that to another level and basically get to sort of like carry along in that journey. Yeah, you're seeing that a lot these days. It's like there's big teams that almost act like pro teams and everyone has a similar mindset. There's a lot of like-minded people. Everyone is pretty selflessly helping each other while also trying to do the best for themselves. And I feel like you're seeing a lot of the top competitors now move to those teams or come out of those teams. And that's probably going to be the next few years is probably going to be strengthened even even more. Yeah, I've I've said this for a little while now that to me that is probably the next major direction for the sport like people often talk about like oh what's the next big big thing in the sport like you know before it was leg locks and maybe it's wrestling but i actually think um the approach to training and a team's approach to training is actually what's going to be probably the biggest changes we we saw this already with like the danaher death squad um even you know older interviews with craig he talked about this idea that when one of them went and competed they all got to learn from that one competitor's mistakes by being on the exact same page about um, different areas of jujitsu. You know, if uh, any of them had a failure just in any aspect, you could look at that and say, was that a failure in execution or was that a failure in the system? And I think we're going to see this become more um, more prevalent in the sport. I think partly because of, you know, what we talked about before, the, you know, epistemology and pedagogy, um, 
becoming larger aspects of the sport is easier than to have that transfer of skill and knowledge. Um, and so I think it's easier than to develop a team that has um, very similar skill sets and, and a very similar approach to jiu-jitsu. So you're training in Melbourne with Lachlan and them. What was the decision process of moving to Sydney? Um, so it was less of a decision to move to Sydney and it was more I happened to be here when Melbourne went back into lockdown. Um, at the beginning of COVID, uh, Australia had a nationwide lockdown for three months. I think a lot of countries did that. And so my partner um, is from Sydney and so she was heading back to work as well as I was coming up to Sydney to, to just visit my parents. Um, and just while I was here, um, Melbourne went back into lockdown. And the longer that that lockdown sort of went on, the more it was like, well, you know, I guess I'm going to stay here in Sydney. You know, my parents live in Newcastle and and there is jujitsu there, but there's probably not really enough jujitsu there to make a living off of it. So I was spending more time in Sydney, if anything, which is about an hour and a half away. Um, but that meant then that rather than staying with my parents, I was, I was paying double rent in Sydney and, you know, I couldn't really afford to pay double, you know, double rent. I couldn't afford to pay rent in Sydney and in Melbourne. So eventually I had to make the decision to have someone move uh, my stuff out of my place in Melbourne. And I've stayed here. And I forgot to ask you this earlier as well, but how do you decide what to put your time into? Like I've always been good at knowing what works, but I don't want to waste six months on something that won't give me the biggest results. So like you seem like you put a lot of thought into what you practice, what you study, what you're trying to add to your game. What's your number one priority for, I need to add this to my game. I need to add that. How do you decide on those kind of things? So I think first and foremost, I don't work on anything that isn't going to solve it. Oh, sorry. I wouldn't say never, um, but I rarely will work on something that doesn't already solve an issue. Like I, like I don't think it's worth working on something that's, you know, just for fun. There's some positions I have done that for, but not so much because I thought, oh, you know, like this seems like a fun position. I'll work on this, but um it's, you know, say, for example, something that Craig recommended I work on and, and said that that's a position that he's been working on. And so he, you know, suggested that I put some time into it. Um, and typically when that happens, I, I find that it is a very strong position and, you know, it, it was worth the effort. But I, I wouldn't do that out of sort of just intuition, just sort of put time into something that I didn't think had potential or really solved an issue. I guess to take it a few steps back, uh, this is something I, I've spoken with some of my students about is I, I think um, for development in the sport, you know, we often talk about being well-rounded, but I, I don't think it's worth coming up through the sport being well-rounded. Um, you you just effectively, you, you shit at everything um, versus if you could take, you know, a, a few key uh, skill sets up to championship level um, and then you can sort of ride ride that while you're developing other skill sets up to championship level and so then i think once you have a you know like some championship level skill sets you know like having something that is an effective strategy to win you've got to make the decision then that do you double down on that or do you start working on other skill sets and i think it's worth sort of expanding in both directions um if i had to say whether or not it's worth going into one or the other i think it is worth working on your weak areas after that um just you know the sake of diminishing returns but then when do you decide that you've got all the oil from the well like with leg locks for example you see 
people are very good at defending them now compared to two, three, four years ago. Yeah. And some people go in different directions. Some people keep the leg lock skills they have, maybe add to them a small bit, but mix them with the rest of their game, try and work on other things and try and fit it together. And other people just double down on the leg locks and stick with only that. Like, how do you view... There probably isn't a right answer or wrong answer, but what do you think of that kind of situation? Because you're seeing it a lot now with competitors. I've put time into both. Um, I would say I've probably put more time into, you know, dealing with um, what, ha- like, you know, w- when the leg locks aren't working, like where to go. I think because when, you know, people start, you know, uh, they, they give reactions in one direction, then they have to expose things in another direction. So rather than, you know, say, for example, they're defending in a way that is just fundamentally the, the, the correct way for them to defend rather than trying to, you know, uh, force, you know, a square peg into a round hole, um, you know, I, I, I think you're better off trying to, you know, work with what's the best attack with uh, for, for what they're actually, you know, presenting you. That's true. So it's a lot of problem solving, really. Once you have your base set up, then the problems are obviously going to keep coming and you just solve them one by one. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, there is ways to then simplify it, like understanding like fundamentally how are they defending, like like what is fundamentally allowing them to defend the leg locks and then, you know, what sort of skill set then matches up with like that fundamental response. I, I think this is the way to go. That said though, I think it's also then still worth if you have the time to put the time into, okay, why are they able to put themselves in that position? Like it might not be a matter of, you know, uh, solving, you know, if say for example, I think one of the hardest things to deal with um, in leg locking is when someone has already initiated a turnout from saddle. So I I think you can start like identifying, okay, what will I do when they hit a turnout? Like I think coming back from that can be a tough thing to deal with. Um, So you could look at the precursors to that as well as looking at what is your next response going to be? Like are you going to start using that as an opportunity to start exposing the back or coming up? Or are you going to choose to try and pull them back from that? But I, I think the former is probably the easier thing to do than the latter. What would be your future goals then, let's say long term? You obviously want to push the competition more. Do you want to have your own gym? What are your thoughts on where you want to end up in the future? Competition's always been a means to an end for me. It's never really been the goal. For me, jiu-jitsu has just always been the pursuit in itself. Um, I, I had a buddy of mine who... who you know, he, he sat down with me a couple of years ago and he said, well, what is the goal? Like, and, you know, I guess the idea was to get jujitsu to like to get my jujitsu to essentially support itself. So, you know, competing and, and, you know, seminars and all these different things is just a different way of trying to sustain jujitsu, like, like sustain my jujitsu and essentially just make it a hobby that pays for itself. <laughs> Um, the goal is always, um, the, the pursuit of jujitsu. And and so with that, then being able to share that with other people. So coaching, but not just coaching with the intention of dictating to others. Um, but the goal would be to have a create uh, a training room where it's more of a, a collective and, you know, a, a creative approach where it's a group of people working together on something that, uh, they're passionate about. Gives you a lot of satisfaction to share some of the experience you've gained as well. Like it's so hard, like the experience that some people get in jiu-jitsu through 10 years of training, competing, injuries, prioritizing it number one over other things. It is pretty satisfying in fairness to be able to share that experience with other people and to see it help them a lot. I think philosophically, like the reasons why you're doing jiu-jitsu are important. Like uh, having listened to some podcasts with Travis Stevens, he you know, talked about how he never identified 
he never considered himself to identified himself as a competitor and he saw the sort of pitfalls of other people in judo that saw themselves as a competitor and once they sort of reached their goals in the sport they really had a, a what now sort of moment um so i think it's you know if you you want to commit to jiu-jitsu full time like i think it's worth taking sort of a deeper philosophical look at why you're doing the sport and what you want to get out of it yeah it is tricky when you look at yourself as let's say a jiu-jitsu guy who does well in competitions what happens when you get an injury and you can't compete as much like what do you do then but then at the same time i would wonder if avoiding thinking of yourself as a competitor and going 100 percent in on that would that hold you back in terms of being a competitor maybe it wouldn't i'm not sure yeah i i guess it would depend on whether or not the outcome of competition truly matters to you. For me, you know, say for example, going to ADCC um, and doing all of these competitions, admittedly, I'm not really thinking about the gold medal. I'm thinking about how good can I get and how, like, you know, what's the highest level of competition I can test this against. So I, I and I feel like that coincides well with, I guess, what people would see is maximizing competition results as well as probably being, you know, approaching jiu-jitsu is more of an art um i i think like thinking about it that way where competition is a way of really trying to push myself uh, or push my jiu-jitsu to its limits um so that way you're still getting the most out of both um but then still i, I feel like you know having a, a satisfying pursuit of the sport and when i think about the biggest competitions that i've won and the ones i'm most proud of i didn't care about the result at all actually it was more about being excited to show the skills that you've been working on yeah but yeah and thanks for coming on today jeremy really appreciate it It was great to chat to you as well. thank you very much tom that was a good chat big thanks to jeremy for coming on the show it's really clear in chatting to him how much of a student of the game he is and it really rubs off in some of his more technical performances that he's had recently in competition there was some great takeaways from that chat especially how he emphasizes studying note-taking and also the different training methods and processes he has for adding some new skills to his game as usual if you enjoy the podcast please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes if you haven't already we'll be back next week with another great guest so until then slánagas banacht